Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why? Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you want to follow me, you can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram, as well as read my film reviews at cupofmo.com. And you can check out my tech website, techuplife.com. And we have a special guest in the studio today. What's up, Celluloid Fiends? This is Wes Clifton. I'm a writer, I'm a film buff, I'm a musician, but I am not an engineer. Um, you can check me out on uh, Instagram at Cliff Weston. Uh, if you want to check out some of my fiction writing, I actually have a new story coming out in July. It's a, a Western story, my first published Western story. Uh, you can check out my writing at my website, WDClifton, uh, D as in for Dale, WDClifton.wordpress.com. And in terms of music, I always have different projects going on right now. I actually, some friends and I went back and found a bunch of recordings from my old punk band from the early 2000s. We were called Brentwood, and we just uh, basically put those all out for free for anybody who wants to listen because they're so old. Um, So that's brentwood.bandcamp.com. Oh, heck yeah. I'm going to check that out. And congrats on the upcoming uh, Western Thank you. that you're going to have published. Thank you very much. I was uh, I remember the last time I was on the podcast talking about it, and then it's taken a little while, but it's finally coming out. So <laughs> I am super excited for that. And it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, this is, is this your third time on the show? Third time. Third time's a charm. Heck Yeah. Uh, Wes from the beginning has just been, uh, you know, one of our biggest fans, one of our biggest supporters. So, uh, really appreciate all that support, uh, not just in you coming on the show, but you know, you, you're always texting me after, after the episodes go up and, uh, Wes is actually responsible for our Instagram account. So thank you very much to, uh, to you for that, buddy. Yeah. I love, uh, I was telling you earlier, I love Instagram. Like I'm a middle school girl or something. So I might as well <laughs> Well, you know, when you're, when you're on lockdown, gotta, gotta stay entertained somehow. Oh, yeah. Uh, and tonight we are talking about the 1975 classic deep red. And this was, uh, this was, this was a West pick. Yeah. So, uh, before we get into some details, why did you end up picking this film? So I'm going to try not to talk about the pandemic very much because what a bummer, but I will mention, it's hard not to talk about it. And I'll mention our state, North Carolina has been on uh, stay at home for the past month and a half, two months or so. And um, so in order to kind of pass the time, I have been delving into um, Italian horror movies and uh, Giallo, Gialli in particular. Um, uh, it's something I've always had an interest in Italian horror ever since undergrad. 
um, but I've just never really taken a huge deep dive. And so I've been watching a lot of movies. And uh, one of the first ones that I watched during all this was Deep Red. It was a first time watch for me. And I was just so struck by it. I believe I texted you like the same night or the very next day and was like, dude, we have to talk about this movie. I don't think I realized, though, that this was your first watch. Yeah, yeah. And then I watched it again for the podcast. So I've watched it twice now. But I had never seen it before. Um like a month ago. Yeah. It has just infinite replay value. Yes. There's so much to take in here. Uh, so this was, this is a great pick and you said you were having a deep dive into Giallo. So I guess you're having a deep red dive, deep red dive into Giallo. Yes, sir. (laughs) Uh, so this movie was directed by Dario Argento and it was co-written by Dario Argento and Bernardino Zapponi. I probably mispronounced uh, his last name there. We'll probably do that a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, Stay tuned, guys, for us to mispronounce every single name that we throw out here. It made $629,903 at the U.S. box office, and it has a 96% critic rating and an 86% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm actually a little curious. What do you think of those scores? The Rotten Tomato scores? Yes. Dude, I don't want to spoil how I'm going to talk about this movie for the rest of the podcast, but I think they're well-deserved. I mean, this movie is a masterpiece, man. I am, I love this movie. Uh, watching it again today, like you said, had it was just the replay value. I was not at all bored. I had watched it very recently, and it just something about this movie, man. It's a special movie. I, I remember looking at that 96% critics on Rotten Tomatoes. I was kind of surprised just because usually if I like something, the critics don't. Um, but this movie I know has a really, a really good reputation and I think it's well-deserved. I 100% agree with you. I think it's very well-deserved. The one I was slightly surprised about was the audience score because on the one hand, I think there are a lot of people like us who are pretty big fans of the genre and of Argento films, but I also feel like it's it's one of those special films that it takes a certain kind of audience member to appreciate. Yeah, it's a little off the beaten path um, for like a mainstream American horror fan or even thriller fan. Totally. So this movie starts out at Christmas time. And I guess you could say the beginning is Christmas adjacent. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And you see a pair of shadowy figures struggling and then a child screams and a blood soaked knife falls to the floor by the child's feet. And then it cuts to present day. And psychic Helga Uman, portrayed by Maka Merrill, sorry there for mispronouncing your name, gives a speech where she predicts that a member of the audience is a killer. Later in the evening, Helga hears a children's song and then is brutally murdered. And jazz musician Marcus Daly, David Hemmings, witnesses the murder while walking home and rushes to the scene of the crime, but it's too late. Once the police arrive, Marcus notices that a painting in the apartment seems to have vanished mysteriously. Reporter Gianni Brezzi, Daria, I'm not even going to pronounce her last name there because I'm going to botch it, shows up to cover the killing. Brezzi's article the next day outs Marcus as the chief witness in the investigation. And after narrowly escaping the killer, Gianni and Marcus team up to investigate. 
so you mentioned you watched this movie twice. So what was the time frame between your two watches? Yeah, I think I watched I think I watched it the first time right around the beginning of April and this is mid May now, so about a month and a half apart. Yeah. And did your opinion at all change or did you kind of view it differently on the second watch? You know, it didn't really change that much because like I said, the first time I watched it, I was just so struck by it. It was in my head for days and I texted you about it almost immediately. And then today, once again, watching it, I was just amazed by how wonderful it was. Now, since then, um, the only things that have changed really are that I, it was I won't say it was the first Giallo that I'd ever seen because you and I and um, Kenny went to see Tenebrae at um, the Carolina. And then I had also seen um, a Bay of Blood, Mario Bava's Bay of Blood. Um, But this, so, but as this was, I've seen several more Giallo since then, let's just say in my little deep dive here. And uh, also I think watching it a second time, I think that knowing where the plot was headed helped me to kind of, put together the pieces a little better it's one of those movies and i don't say this as an insult but it's one of those movies where the plot is very complex and the first time i watched it i was thinking like that maybe certain parts seemed a little disjointed and i was having a little bit of a hard time following the narrative but this time kind of knowing where everything was going it all fit together much better um, and I will say, just while it's on my mind, because I'm waging a one-man war against spoilers, that for any listeners that may be new to the show, this is a mystery story, and I'm sure that we are going to give away everything as this episode goes on. So if you've not seen it, I hate when people say this on podcasts, but seriously, if you've not seen it, just pause us right now and go watch Deep Red. It's on Amazon Prime, and it's well worth your time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And kind of dovetailing off what you were saying there, uh, I think this was maybe my third watch of this movie because I, I watched it the first time on DVD. I caught it. At, I think it was playing at a retro actually. And then I watched it again uh, the, er, earlier this week. And I, I had this interesting experience where when I was watching it this week, I realized the first time I watched this movie, I had no idea where it was going. And a lot happens in this movie, oh, a yeah. lot. And like you, the first time I watched it, I thought this is kind of disjointed. And I realized while watching it this time that it sort of pit, puts you into the shoes of someone investigating the murder as it's going on. You're kind of along uh, along the ride with Gianni and, and Marcus, and you're trying to figure out who the killer is. And then if you watch it a subsequent time, that time you're able to actually kind of pick up the clues and you have these gotcha moments as you're proceeding through the film. Yeah. It, um, it reminds me, I mean, while I'm heaping high praise in this film, it reminds me of when I was much younger and I first got into the Godfather franchise and like, the Godfather obviously is so, the plot is so complicated. And I remember having to watch that movie so many times before everything clicked and, Honestly, I really appreciated that about the movie because it was it was layered enough to to give me pleasure through multiple watchings of The Godfather. And I feel like this movie was kind of the same. Like as I was watching it today, it wasn't boring. I was seeing it from a whole new perspective and it just it's complex enough in a good way to keep it entertaining and keep it a fun watch. Absolutely. 
Uh, and that's a really interesting comparison, The Godfather, because I think this probably gets compared to a lot of other Argento films and Giallo films. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's one I, I don't think I would have thought initially to compare it to. But I think that's I think that's pretty fitting. Just the complexity is all. Yeah, right. And I think from a technical perspective, this is just really a masterpiece. And it definitely has that Argento vibe to it because there's that score by goblin and it's very avant-garde yeah Uh, and i think one of my favorite scenes was actually kind of towards the end when marcus is exploring the dilapidated mansion and there's just this really funky baseline going it's going crazy the whole time. So the bass player from Goblin and I, I'm, I've been, I was born and raised in the American South. So people are just going to expect me to butcher <laughs> Italian names. But Fabio Pignatelli is the uh, is the bass player for Goblin at that time, and uh, and actually I guess for most of the time for Goblin and and his bass line, his bass lines really drive a lot of this movie. Honestly, like the score anyway. Oh yeah, my uh, my surround sound was thumping. Yes, I was surprised I did not get a noise complaint from the neighbors when that happened. Uh, and I think for me, one thing that makes this movie really visually captivating, and also in at some point stuff to watch, are just the kills. Yes, yeah. they're really brutal. They're really creative. But one thing I, I appreciate a lot is the camera work is so dynamic that it never really lingers too much on a kill or even just in general, it tends to kind of hop around a lot. Yeah. And I just absolutely love that. And there's just so much attention to detail. Those, um, those stylized murders are a real trademark of uh, Gialli, Giallo as a, as a genre, as a film genre, those, those stylized kills. And I mean, obviously Argento was a master of it. Um, at this point, I can use a quote from another of my favorite Italian directors, Lucio Fulci, uh, and he um, he was once quoted and has been quoted many times as saying that violence is Italian art, and I think that is such a good way to sum up so much of Italian horror cinema. That is an excellent quote, and the fascinating thing about a lot of the kills in Deep Red is they're tough to watch. They're really brutal, but they're also very beautiful and sort of choreographed and almost like a dance. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's trademark Argento, right? I mean, that yeah, it's so weird to say. It sounds so macabre to say that a, that a, a murder scene is beautiful, but the way that he shoots them is fascinating, and just the, this the look, the feel, the music. I mean, I don't know. It's something else, man. It's very artistic. Yeah. And something that I read, which I had no idea about, is that actually two of the uh, kills in here inspired a couple kills from various films, including David Cronenberg's Scanners. Oh. And also Halloween 2. Because there's the scalding water death in Halloween 2. And of course... There's the scalding water death in Deep Red. Wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, wow. I thought you were going somewhere else with that because, the uh, you know, famously, 
Um, another giallo, uh, Mario Bava's Obey of Blood, which I mentioned earlier, sometimes called Twitch of the Death Nerve, uh, is uh, famous you know, for inspiring two of the kills in Friday the 13th Part 2, even though the creators of Friday the 13th Part 2 deny that. I did not know that. Yeah, Bay that of is a Blood, fun fact. Obey of Blood is a, another really great movie. Um, and obviously, Bava, Fulci, and, Ar- and Argento are usually considered kind of the three big Italian horror directors, and Mario Bava being basically the godfather of Italian horror. A Bay of Blood is usually kind of given credit for sparking the one of the movies that, that really sparked the slasher genre. That's and that's a film that I actually have not seen yet. So at some point, I need to get around to checking that one out. It's rad, dude. <laughs> Did you have a favorite of the kills in this film? Man, it's tough. Um, it's really hard to pick. So I um, first off, I won't say this is my favorite kill, but I just want to say you were given that great plot description earlier, and I, and the the opening of this movie is so great because it. it it gives you exactly what you're going to get for the rest of the film. You get this like creepy childlike singing. You see this knife murder happen in the shadows and this knife falls to the ground, dripping this bright red blood. And then a little kid steps up to it. And then bam, you go into the theme song by goblin. I just, I think that's great. It's not my favorite murder scene in the movie, but it is a great scene. But in terms of the murders, um, I'm really torn because I think that the murder of the psychiatrist slash parapsychologist, whose name is Giordani, uh, I think that his murder is really interesting because of the creepy doll, which is obviously one of the most, like a robot doll. It's really crazy. And that's one of the iconic images of this movie. Plus his face just gets bashed in. Ouch. It hurts to watch. And then the other one is... um, and this is where the major spoilers come in, but when the final killer um, is revealed and she is um, killed, her head gets sliced off by her own necklace. It is, and then there's this long scene of the, you don't really, at least in the cut I saw, you don't really see her body. You just see the necklace drenched in blood, like going down this elevator after it has pulled the necklace through her neck and cut her head off. It's crazy. Yeah, I think that uh, is probably my favorite of the uh, of the kills in this, just because I remember the first time I watched it, I was thinking, no, there's no way she's going to get decapitated by her own necklace that is caught in an elevator. Nope, that's exactly what's happening. And uh, yeah, so Giordani's death was really weird to me. Every time I watch it, it, it almost feels slightly out of place because the whole animatronic creepy doll yeah with no explanation right they don't ever explain that creepy animatronic animatronic doll no it ha- it has no explanation why was that used and he sort of seems mildly surprised by it but yeah. it's it's sort of a mild shock it's it's not where the heck did this come from yeah. So was that something that he had? Did the killer bring that? I mean, the killer what? would have had to bring it because the killer uses it to distract him so that he doesn't see her sneaking up on him. Yeah, but that was that is a weird yeah. scene. Very weird, but but really effective. And I mean, that image of that creepy doll in its face, I, I can't say this for sure. This is just conjecture. But I have wondered whether that doll... Um, 
was um the the inspiration for the killer's mask in that movie um happy death day and that what it's called the movie that came out a, a while back um here in america it's like kind of a meta slasher parody that is the name of it and it looks exactly like that yeah. but i have no idea me either i just it just looks so much like it and so you mentioned the cut that you watched apparently there are a bunch of different versions of this yeah right uh, and i'm not entirely sure which one i watched i think the first time i watched it i may have watched the i think it was the blue underground version which had like an uncensored english version yeah the as far as i can tell the two and you're right there's multiple kinds but the two main cuts are the italian version like the international version and the um the u.s version um so the u.s version so did you watch in in your version how long was yours for one thing i think it was around two hours and mine was entirely in italian there you go so you watched the longer subs yeah the version i got off of amazon prime is an hour and 40 minutes it's had 26 minutes chopped out which apparently argento himself um supervised those cuts but uh back in the day but um so the the uh, english language version which i watched um has is only an hour and 44 minutes and that's the other thing i was going to ask because other versions have kept the english dubbing but they've reinserted some of those missing shots and so apparently some of the dubbing has been lost over time so if you watch a longer version sometimes with english it'll drop into italian just for certain scenes because that part of the dubbing has been lost so that's the other way you can tell i think the first time i watched it it was actually on one of those cuts because uh, i thought something was maybe going wrong with my blu-ray player and it was switching between audio tracks or something yeah so i paused it and checked and it was like no it's it's the right thing it's just switching between english and italian and and i did a quick google search this was the first time i watched it um so i, I guess i've seen multiple cuts of it before that's pretty and that's not uncommon with uh argento's movies i know that when i was watching phenomena recently uh, or phenomenon. I always forget if it's singular or plural, but I think it's phenomenon. But when I was watching that, um, it kept switching back and forth between English and Italian, and I thought, "What's going on?" And apparently, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, some of the dubbing, the English dubbing's just been lost, or or was never recorded for some of the scenes that they later reinserted, because a lot of these Italian horror movies would arrive in the United States heavily cut. Totally. And one, so one thing you were saying about the opening to this film is it it really does. Uh, in my mind, set that tone uh, of the juxtaposition between this innocence, childlike innocence, and then this really intense uh, brutality that kind of pervades throughout. And I kind of like that it continues, like you were saying, with the child's lullaby that precedes all of the murders. Yeah. It's just, it's really creative. And that stark contract, I think, adds to the eeriness of the overall motion picture. And it has this kind of dreamlike, nightmarish tone, which I appreciate a lot. Uh, even just kind of those random scenes where there would be toys or like dolls or like a little toy cradle that tips over and, and the marbles knocking together. Yeah, I. That's the one part 
Well, not the one. But that's that's one of the things in the movie that I wonder if it had a deeper significance in the longer version or something. Um, because, or was it just kind of creepy imagery <laughs> to reveal that this person's insane? Because while I love those scenes, I don't know that I can ever figure out if if what's going on in those scenes with the marbles and the cribs and the dolls and all that has any connection at all to the to the killer's backstory, or if it's just this person's a nut. Uh, so I am not entirely sure. Uh, having watched the longer cut, I don't think there's necessarily a concrete connection, but I just sort of interpreted it as a kid witnessing this murder and sort of, you know, the playthings being upended Yeah, in a lot of ways where, oh, you know, yeah. the marbles violently crashing together, the uh, doll crib flipping over, like a doll swing from the ceiling or whatever. So that kind of perversion of being a child, man, you did great with that. Away. <laughs> you did, you did great with that. I, I never considered that, that uh, take on it. That's interesting. Why? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was my interpretation. Uh, I'm glad. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, phenomena. I haven't seen that one, but as I was watching deep red, one thing I was thinking of is, so we have the psychic Helga, yeah. And that kind of made me think of some of the other sort of supernatural things that occur in a lot of Argento's other films. And then it got me thinking of Stephen King and how a lot of his different books are kind of connected. And do you think Deep Red, Suspiria, some of those other Argento films all exist in the same universe? Very interesting. So... I would answer kind of yes and no. Like, I don't know if they actually exist in the same universe in the way that we have come to think of that now, like with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and things like that. I don't know that I think that they necessarily exist in that way. But earlier I was reading um, an interview with Dario Argento and the interviewer kept asking him about his process. And he would say they would always describe it in terms of this world that you have created and our, and Argento would answer questions like, yes, in the world that I am creating in my films. So I think in a way they all take place in Argento world, right? Like it's not really our world. It's the way that Argento chooses to view and portray the world. But I don't know that they exist, you know, in, in a way that we would think about like a, a larger cinematic universe, but I definitely think that, that they exist in the world as Dario Argento chooses to portray it. I, I like that. Uh, I like that take. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to imagine now Argento's version of the Avengers. Yeah, right. And, and I'm not sure I want to imagine that. Pretty messed up. Jennifer from Phenomena and uh, <laughs> maybe some of the chicks from Suspiria. Oh, that would be that would be pretty messed up. I don't even know. Would they be the heroes, the villains? <laughs> you, I'm sure there will be plenty of twists and turns along the way. Some stylized murders and some dope music. Oh yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd watch it. Oh, uh, today I'll watch it today. <laughs> so every time I I watch Deep Red, I always end up forgetting at some point towards the middle of the film that Gianni and Marcus are not detectives. Yeah, that's another trademark of the giallo genre, right? Um, this sort of investigator who's not a cop. Uh, some some sort of outsider, you know. It's uh, a lot of times they're ex they're expats, so a lot of times they're a British person, as in the case with Marcus, or they're an American, as is the case in Bird with a Crystal Plumage. Um, 
a lot of times they are musicians, writers, journalists um, who who do these investigations, and they're usually police involved. And this one, the police were very, very barely involved to the point where I can't even remember the inspector's name. It's a long Italian name that starts with C. But um, but yeah, that's a that's another trademark is that is that outsider perspective. And that's something that I I always love about Giallo films is that trademark, and I particularly feel like it's well done in Deep Red, Uh, especially down to, like you were saying, the cops are barely in this, and then when they are, uh, the lead detective is chowing down on a sandwich at the crime scene, or always has a cup of coffee in his hand, and it, it seems intentional to sort of posit the police in deep red as sort of the laughing stock yeah and and they're not always not in all giallo right like if i'm i might they might be running together in my head but i'm pretty sure in um bird with the crystal plumage um the police inspector is much more involved in the investigation and much more competent um but yeah in this one i totally understand what you're saying yeah uh, so I thought that was a nice twist and it, uh, on this as opposed to other Giallo films. Uh, and I feel like it was uh, it was almost something similar in Tenabri, which we watched that one together a while back. Yeah, at um, at the Carolina. Yep. Yep. Because uh, that's another that's another one that I just absolutely love. So good, man. It's so good. It, it really just doesn't get old. It has a lot of similarities in a lot of ways to this film, but I mean, they're definitely their own animal, but stylistically, I mean, you can really, (laughs) there's a lot of Argento in both of them. Oh yes. Uh, So with that, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to keep talking about deep red. unnatural kind of death. Beyond shock. What was that? Beyond horror into total terror. Murder runs wild. Blood runs cold. Deep red. Conjecture is that an act of bloodshed was once committed in that house. Everywhere you look, 
everywhere you turn. Death is running with you. Hey guys, we are back and we are talking about in Deep Red. Profundo Rosso. And, you know, one thing that I, I just really love about this movie is is the world building. And kind of like I was saying earlier, uh, I, I, again, I just feel like it has a Stephen King kind of feel to it in the way that everything is very intentional and... There's just kind of a lot of weird stuff going on. That, and I will say that for the benefit of the listener, that during the um, during the break, that um, that sparked some Stephen King conversation between us. Uh, and I did want to mention just a quick shout out. Some friends of ours, since the last time we did an episode, uh, some friends of ours have started up their own podcast based around um, Stephen King. A couple of our friends, Donnie and Tarl, who are probably the biggest Stephen King buffs that i know personally uh their podcast is called stephen king rules i'm not sure exactly what all platforms it's on i listen to it on itunes um, but people should check that out they put a lot of work into it and it's uh it's a really a good listen by some dudes who are super into stephen king stephen king rules podcast and as a massive stephen king fan i will 100 say you if you're even a mild stephen king fan you got to check out the podcast it I'm a mild Stephen wonderful. King fan, and I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, whether you're into Stephen King books, film adaptations, whatever, that is a podcast that you got to check out. Uh, so a couple of the weird, like, just the really bizarre scenes in here uh, in Deep Red. One was the scene with the little girl where she's yeah. like, stabbed a lizard. Yeah, yeah, right. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just it doesn't really seem to to really go anywhere or, or have a purpose. Although I guess it sort of kind of ties into that whole idea of, uh, you know, the perversion of childhood. Yeah, but then there's also this one scene where it cuts to these two dogs fighting for about thirty seconds. I'm not sure if that was in the cut that that you watched. It's not in that cut. I, I was reading about that online. The dog fight is not in my the version that I've seen. And I think it's been in all the versions that I've seen. I've seen, I guess, probably two or three different versions. And it makes no sense to me because it just kind of cuts to that for about 10 seconds. Yeah. And then cuts away. And I always think maybe it will cut back to that. Nope, it doesn't. Just kind of stuck in. Yeah, I don't know. I've not seen that. 
I'll say about the child, though, I, I mean, you know, I always hate to say, like, well, the Italians, because I've never been to Italy. I'm not Italian. I don't know, any, I don't know anything about Italy except for watching a lot of their movies. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these Italian horror movies and thrillers um, do feature children. I mean, a lot of times kind of creepy children. Uh, Lucio Fulci and uh, the, the movies he did with, uh, particularly with Dardano Sacchetti as the screenwriter, had a lot of um, children in it. You know, and, and, you know, they, they presented it in various ways. Sometimes they would say, um, you know, that, that the children are there because they see the world and they see adults for who they really are. And they see the darkness in, in the adults and things like that. But I think in this instance, you're onto something about that kind of, um, you know, the loss of innocence through childhood and things like that. Yeah, that's that's kind of the only connection I could I could really make to that. Uh, and then a couple other things that I think are absolutely hilarious and very strange about Deep Red are that it just seems like the entire thing is just very, co- there's just a lot of coincidence and kind of miraculously figuring things out. Like the way when Marcus visits the uh, like the house in the country uh, and uh, I'm blanking on on uh, the woman's name who was killed. The author? And, yeah, and he Amanda, realizes that her hand Amanda was. Rietti. Yeah, Amanda, and he realizes that her hand was pointing, and and he finds that suspicious. Dude, you know what I want to say about that scene? My dude bails on that corpse. Like he just bails on that corpse. I love it. The next scene, he's talking to somebody, and and I think he's talking to Giordani, and he's like, "So, do you think they found the body yet?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm sure they have." Which basically just means he goes to this lady's house, finds her dead and scalded to death, and it's just like, "Oop, I'm out of here," and doesn't call the police, doesn't do anything. He just bounces. You know, he probably he probably should have called the police, <laughs> but I mean, if he keeps showing up around dead bodies, I mean, my dude just bails. Oh yeah, he was like, "Nope, not sticking around for this one." But you know, he has no sense of boundaries anyway. Like he breaks into so many places in this movie. I guarantee you, the landlord of that house, like the kind of mystery house that he keeps going to investigate, I guarantee you, the landlord regrets the day he ever saw that guy. I mean, he he breaks down the walls, he breaks out the windows. Eventually, the whole place gets burned to the ground. <laughs> I just feel so bad for that landlord at the end. He's just sitting there like, well, do you think the ghosts did it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he he had a blatant disregard for everything in this movie. Yeah, no respect for other people's property. None whatsoever. Uh, So we we were talking a little bit earlier about the music, the soundtrack by Goblin, and also that kind of lullaby uh, motif that plays throughout for all the kills and i was kind of curious uh i want to talk about the the music a little bit and i was curious what you thought about the score as well as that kind of lullaby uh melody that plays and how this compares to other goblin soundtracks other giallo soundtracks and just other of your favorite movie soundtracks my friend what i think about the score for this movie is that it is amazing i mean like the score for this movie is a masterpiece and it's such an interesting development really in in horror film scoring i mean it's so influential so if you watch um jolly and if you watch um we haven't really talked about the term 
Giallo really this whole time. I mean, I, I think we're assuming that listeners will know what a Giallo is, but maybe some of the listeners won't. Before we talk about soundtracks, should we talk about what a Giallo is a little bit? Yeah, you know, that's probably not a bad idea. I, I just thought of that. Like, I don't want to break into like the history of Giallo, like music for Gialli without explaining what they are. So, um, you know, um, Giallo is a is a distinctly Italian film um, genre, and really it refers to a specific type of mystery film. It, the word giallo comes from these mystery, pulp mystery novels that were popular in Italy that had yellow covers, giallo being the Italian word for yellow. And so that word just kind of became synonymous for Italians with a mystery or whodunit story. And then the giallo film genre, um, you know, that's just basically a, a distinctly Italian form of mystery film. We've already talked a little bit about some of what sets it apart. You know, it's usually very stylized. It relies on a lot of stylized kill scenes. Um, typically, your protagonist is a an outsider of some kind, whether that be an expat or, a, you know, somebody who's not a police officer investigating. Um, a lot, you know, basically the origins of that genre can be traced back to Mario Bava and some of Mario Bava's um, films like The Girl Who Knew Too Much and distinctly Blood and Black Lace, which I also watched for the first time recently. And sh- there is a huge influence from Blood and Black Lace on this movie, for sure. Uh, another thing about Jalo is that a lot of times the killer was dressed in a very distinctive way. Uh, black leather gloves, usually um, uh, black or in this case, brown raincoat, kind of a, a floppy hat to to disguise their identity. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit about Jalo. I just didn't want to keep talking about it if the, maybe the listeners didn't, didn't know about it. Yeah, no, I think it was a good idea to give a little bit of a history. Yeah. Uh, a history of Giallo. And if you're at all familiar with slasher films, but not familiar with Giallo, you'll notice a lot, if you start watching some, a lot of similarities between the two. For sure. And I already mentioned uh, A Bay of Blood earlier, but also John Carpenter is, a you know, with Halloween basically kind of kickstarted the whole slasher genre. And he's a huge Argento fan uh, and a huge Mario Bava fan. So uh, John Carpenter's been very open about the influence that Jello films had on on his work. Yeah. And especially if you go back to, like you were saying, the original Halloween, you can totally see that influence. Because if you think about it, the two primary investigators are sort of Loomis and Laurie. Yeah. And neither of them are, uh, are the police at all. They sort of insert themselves in there. And another thing that I think it's pretty safe to say, he probably took influence from, uh, or maybe not, but it just seems like a big coincidence. If not, if in blood and black lace, the killer um, is dressed very similar to how the killer is dressed in deep red with the, the raincoat, the black gloves, the, the big hat, but also the killer in blood and black lace wears a solid white mask. Right. So that seems very reminiscent of the Michael Myers mask to me. Um, So yeah, definitely a big influence on the, on the later slasher phenomenon. Definitely. And I don't think this is a uh, giallo, but it was uh, one of the earliest slasher films and definitely has a strong giallo vibe, which was Alice Sweet Alice. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think I, I think we actually met for the first time at a screening of that, didn't we? Indeed, sir. Alice yeah. Sweet Alice. Oh, <laughs> uh, yep, sure did. That was a special screening. Indeed. That was the first time I ever saw Pieces, but would not be the last time. 
No. In fact, uh, we watched that recently, yep. which was kind Virtual of a blast. Movie night. Virtual movie night. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't want to duck your question about the scores because I really want to talk about hard, uh, about film scores. But I just wanted to kind of we kept talking about Jalo and I wanted to make sure that we kind of explain that a little bit for the people at home. Conspiracy theory. That was just so that you could have a little delay and write down your favorite film scores. Jokes on you. I wrote them down earlier today in anticipation of this question. Um, but yeah, so you're talking about the music in this movie and I'll say, um, so this was Goblin's first, but definitely not last um, collaboration with Argento before this kind of the big, well, there was a lot of Italian composers um, that worked with Giallo films, but um Ennio Morricone, who is a super famous uh, Italian movie composer, had done a lot of scores, including Argento's earlier um, films like Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Cat of Nine Tales. Uh, Ennio Morricone had done the scores for those, and they were more classic symphonic scores. And then with this one, it's like you said earlier, man, they they really took it up a notch. So they, he got Goblin to score this, this movie he had originally wanted, and I wrote the name down, and I'm going to destroy it. Um, Giorgio Gaslini, uh, he had wanted to compose the film and he had composed it. And then Argento did not like what he submitted. Uh, so he just kind of stumbled across Goblin. They were this upstart prog rock band who were trying to make it as like a, as like a, just a prog rock group. And, uh, he asked them if they would score it. They had something like four days to write the score for this film and movie history was made. Uh, history was made indeed. And I think, I think I recall the entire film was shot over something like six weeks. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's wild. I think that's correct. We, uh, which is really remarkable when you think about the lasting power that this movie has had. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and one thing that I think is really fascinating about this that you can really tell is this was an early goblin soundtrack because yeah. it's absolutely masterful it's got that kind of avant-garde prog rock vibe to it but it definitely has some in especially in spots a sort of raw ruggedness to it which really resonates with me i, I absolutely love it oh same yeah it's and it's distinct from other goblin scores really like it sounds a lot different like you said you can tell it's earlier and that ruggedness probably comes from writing it I want to say, I, I don't quote me, but I do want to say it was something like four days that they had to write the score for this movie. I mean, that's insane <laughs> to to write a soundtrack this influential in four days. It's crazy. Yeah, uh, a lot of group. I think a lot of groups couldn't write that something that wonderful in four weeks or even four months. Yeah, it's insane. so I think that really. Uh, shows their their prowess and uh it's probably one of the reasons that argento like you were saying went on to become such a frequent collaborator with them oh yeah for sure and he would would constantly talk about what a big part of his movies their music was i mean he's not ashamed to talk about how much he uh loves um goblin and and he's done a lot of work with uh, claudio simonetti their keyboard player synthesizer player specifically yeah, because one of the big things about Deep Red and a lot of Argento's films is that music played such a key role. And in this case, there's, of course, that lullaby sequence that plays before the actual murders. But then oftentimes 
like we were talking about earlier with the with a lot of the kills, how they seem very orchestrated and kind of dance like the music not only sets a tone and kind of will induce anxiety or suspense, but it almost is sort of like a musical backdrop for a ballet that you're seeing transpire. Very gruesome ballet, but kind of a dance number. A crazy ballet, too. I mean, this... Every time the music would come on in this movie, I would think this this music sounds manic. I mean, it sounds like it's just insane. The way that you had worded it, um, it, it and and maybe in the show notes that I saw earlier, where um, was you had asked, um, do I think the music fits the movie? And and I think it does. I don't imagine that this movie would be at all what it is without the music. But at the same time, it just it sounds so different than if you watched other movies from the period that it, it's it's jarring almost, but in a in a way that drives the plot and drives just the insanity that's going on. It's just so manic sounding. Absolutely, and it sort of mimics the unhinged killer a little bit. Yeah, and yeah, it it totally does that, and uh, I, I think it lends a much needed anxiety to the movie and it really makes the movie in a, in a similar way that you know people talk about the importance of the score on John Carpenter's Halloween you know all 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 accounts say that when that movie first screened without the music people just didn't find it all that frightening and then when John Carpenter himself a huge fan of Argento's movies put the music to it it just totally changed the whole film it's insane what what a good score can do for a film yeah, I mean, there are people who recognize the Halloween theme song, but they have not actually seen the movie. So I think that just goes to show how important music can be to a film. Uh, so Goblin did the score, composed the score for a lot of different Argento films, uh, including uh, Suspiria. Yep. Do you have a favorite Goblin soundtrack? Yeah, I mean, and I can't sit here and claim that I've listened extensively to all their soundtracks, but I've listened to quite a few. I think of all the ones that I've listened to, um, Tenebrae is is probably my favorite. I think most people consider Suspiria kind of their masterpiece, but there's something wild about Tenebrae, which, to be fair, is not... I guess it's not officially a Goblin score. It's credited to three of the members of Goblin. They had broken up, and then they got back together with Sans Drummer uh, to write the score for Tenebrae, but it's just... Tenebrae is this weird mix of like synth rock, prog rock, and disco in just a really, I don't know, man. I can listen to the soundtrack for Tenebrae over and over and over, and it's just so good. Like just on its own as an album, it's so good. That is one that I think I'm going to have to give another listen to at some point because I've only seen Tenebrae one time. It was when we watched it. And I think I that was the only time I heard the the score, but I, I remember absolutely loving it then. I think if I had to say a favorite Goblin soundtrack, it might be it might be Suspiria. I also love uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I think everyone does. Um, but I also might give it to uh, to Deep Red just because it sounds so unique and the thing is pretty much every goblin soundtrack does sound ridiculously unique yeah they're all so different incredibly different i I mean i don't know how they were able to achieve that 
sound, I, which was recognizable. It was at once recognizable, but also different. I think they were just musical explorers, right? Like if you if you look into them, they were just constantly exploring music. They weren't trying to like pin themselves down. I mean, Claudio Simonetti, especially, you know, I've listened to uh, a lot of his scores that he did on his own too, and and he just was constantly expanding his palette. And I mean, you know, he keeps his personal voice, but he he just constantly brings in new elements to make each score different. Uh, and it's just really it's fascinating. It's like you said, you can always recognize that they're involved, but at the same time, it's always unique and new. 100%. And then I know you like a lot of other soundtracks and composers. So where does Goblin fall when compared to some of your non-Goblin uh, favorite film scores? I think I'd put Goblin in my top three film. You're talking not just horror films. You're talking overall films. Everything. Yeah, overall. I think- I think I'd probably still put them really high. Once you break it up into little into overall, not just uh, not just horror, it kind of makes it a little more difficult because then I got to bring in you know your Basil Polyodoruses and your uh, your uh, Ennio Morcones, even though he did a lot of work in horror too. But uh, I think I would probably still put them top three. Just the first thing that comes to my mind, and once again, most of these are people who work primarily in, or not primarily, but a lot in horror. Um, I would put Fabio Fritzi. Um, probably at the top. Something about Fabio Fritzi's scores um, just really has always drawn me in, and I, I know I'm not alone in that. Um, especially his score for like The Beyond and uh, Zombie Two and things like that. There's just something wild about him. Uh, and people say they're kind of Goblin-esque in a way, and maybe they were, but they're also just they're definitely Fritzi. Uh, I would put John Carpenter up there, obviously. I mean, the man. And I would put Goblin uh, up there as well. And then I already mentioned, you know, people like uh, Basil Polydorus and uh, and Ennio Morricone, and and like, you know, I also really like uh, like Harold Faltemeyer, like uh, Axel F, and uh, from Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, he did the Fletch theme song and things like that. Those are those are great themes too. I forgot he did the Fletch theme song. Yeah, I would I would have to put him up there. I absolutely love Ac- the Axel F theme song because uh, I mean the whole Beverly Hills cop soundtrack to me is is delightful i also love uh jerry goldsmith pretty much anything he touched to me was gold like alien Uh, i love his warlock soundtrack uh i'd have to i definitely have to have goblin up there and john carpenter i mean pretty much again anything he touched was gold and the neat part about him is a lot of his soundtracks like goblin kind of sounded the same they were recognizable you could tell it was john carpenter but they also were pretty unique like the halloween soundtrack sounds nothing like the big trouble in little china soundtrack yeah and i'm struck by carpenter in a lot of ways because he is openly like he's openly simplistic in his writing style he openly strives for simplicity he will admit to not being a super technical musician like claudio simonetti on the keyboards is is a wild man but john carpenter will admit to being you know a a pedestrian musician but he's just a genius composer and he has mastered the art of simplicity like you can listen to john carpenter themes over and they're, they're among the most popular movie themes of all time I mean, everybody knows something of John Carpenter's, but this is just a guy who was doing it to save. He was writing music because he loves music, but also to save money and and just using whatever equipment he had and whatever he could do on his own to make a lot of these scores. It was wild. It's crazy to think about 
just the mastery of simplicity like that. Yeah, his were always just very bare bones. Uh, and a couple of my other favorite composers, I love James Horner, although pretty much all of his soundtracks kind of sound the same. Sure. In a lot of ways, he just goes all in on that timpani. And then uh, I love Alan Silvestri, who to me is absolutely hilarious because he's he's gotten really big and he's done stuff like Avengers Endgame and Captain America, the first Avenger, and he did Forrest Gump. But unless I'm mistaken, I think he also did the soundtrack for Mac and me. Uh, interesting. I always love the, the things like that that don't seem like they match up with the rest of their uh, repertoire. And I, I did. I just looked that up on IMDb. I confirmed it. Yeah. So. In 1988, some of the films he did, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Mac and Me, My Stepmother is an Alien. Whoa. And then, of course, in 89, he did The he did the Abyss. He did Back to the Future Part 2. In 1990, he did Back to the Future Part 3. But it just cracks me up seeing Sandwiched in there between Who Framed Roger Rabbit and The Abyss and Back to the Future Part 2, Mac and Me. Man's got to make a living. I just, uh, <laughs> right. I just thought of, I just thought of a couple more, um, as well. I was looking down at my little list of top five soundtracks that I came up with earlier, just in case we were to start talking about this. And I realized that neither of us have said John Williams. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, John Williams, God, what a, what a genius, like star Wars, Indiana Jones, Jaws, Jaws, Jaws. Oh, I was, oh. <laughs> The Jaws theme, man. I was thinking of a lot about it recently. The Jaws score and, and just John Williams, man. What a what a great composer. And then jumping from John Williams, who everybody knows, to a person that maybe not as many people know. I'm going to throw a little love to my dude George S. Clinton, not Parliament Funkadelic George Clinton, but George S. Clinton, who scored uh, movies like American Ninja Two and uh, American Ninja Three. I'm pretty sure, and things like that. Those, honestly, man, I love a good cheesy '80s soundtrack, and those American Ninja soundtracks that um, George S. Clinton did, and also uh, he did Avenging Force as well i I, the, I could listen to those soundtracks over and over again they're super rare to get in physical media unfortunately but man i love them yeah he's had a really interesting career like alan silvestri as well because he also did austin powers the spy who shagged yeah. me and austin powers gold member he did mortal Kombat, which i actually love uh, the first mortal Kombat movie i thought that was i thought that was really good and yeah, like like you were saying, he also did a bunch of those just super eighties movies like American Ninja. So and that's he's, that stuff he's had I a love. cool career. Yeah, I I love those movies though. Every time I listen to the to I watch the American Ninja movies, I just I get pumped on that music. Man, he did such a great job. Yeah, uh, he's he's a good one. Um, that was a good sleeper pick. And then uh, Christopher Young. I, I forgot to mention him earlier, but he did the Hellraiser films, which wow. I absolutely love. And I think it was it was like Simon Boswell or something like that. Uh, I, I think did the Lord of Illusion soundtrack. But if you look on the original one sheet, it has Christopher Young because he composed part of it. And then uh, Boswell came in and did the rest. That's always interesting arrangements like that. Yeah. Another. Um, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh no, that was it. Another dude. Um, while we're throwing out every composer under the sun, but we'll just, let's just keep talking about all these composers we love. <laughs> uh, Harry Manfredini and his Friday the Thirteenth score. 
um, is amazing. I love I love that. It's a, it's a lot different. Like if you listen to the Friday Thirteenth score, a lot of these ones, well, not all of them, but like Goblin and and Fabio Fritzi and even John Carpenter, like they're almost like songs, like they're like recognizable songs. Whereas Manfredini and Friday Thirteenth, it's just it's like almost like just a, a, a mood going the whole time. It's not necessarily recognizable songs, except maybe the theme song. It's just sort of a mood and then occasional like stabbing notes and things. It's, it's great. I met him at a con uh, several years ago and he was just a really nice, like humble dude. It was a, a real treat to get to meet him. His music, you know, is, is a defining aspect of those Friday the 13th films for me. And his scores were really unique. Oh, yeah. Everybody, that's another thing that everybody knows though. That's another a thing that everybody knows, whether you're into horror or not. People know what you're talking about when you do that. Yep. Yeah. People who mistakenly believed that Jason was the killer in the first Friday, they still know. Spoiler. I thought we were cool to talk about spoilers I on the know, show. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and uh, speaking of which, one thing that I really want to touch on, which we, we haven't gotten to uh, really delve into is i want to talk a little bit about the ending of deep red and and the 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 final reveal of the killer yeah Um, because i remember the first time i watched this i was absolutely shocked at finding out that the killer is carlo's mom so marcus's friend carlo you find out that it was actually his mother and the it's sort of explained that she there had some sort of uh mental thing going on and her husband was going to i think kind of have her locked away yeah and so she didn't want any part of that and decided she would kill him so you find out that the intro scene that you see with the small child witnessing a murder and the bloody knife is Carlo witnessing his mother killing his father. And I, yeah, I I remember I had no idea about that twist. I thought it was one of the best concealed twists in any film that I've seen Giallo or not. But you know, what's really genius about it. And I didn't really pay attention until this second watch is that it, while it is such an ingenious twist. And like you said, you don't really see it coming. It's not in any way a cheat, like in some movies, because you see her face for a flash at the first of the movie, you see it, but you, but it's so quick that unless you pause it, you don't know what you just saw. You are just like Marcus in that you don't know that you just saw the killer's face for a flash. So it's right there in front of you if you knew what you're looking for. I love it. Totally. And I, I on my first watch of this movie, I actually, after I think when the final credits started rolling, I actually went to the DVD menu, went to scene selection, and navigated to that scene. And I, I sure enough, I paused it. And realize you can see her face right there. It's not actually hidden. It's yeah. just that you're oblivious to it. It's so With fast. Marcus. It's so fast. And then the whole rest of the movie, he's like, I'm missing something. And I love it because it's something that you could have seen just like him. He could have seen it and so could you. But you're in the same position he is. You didn't know to look for it and neither did he. But it was there for you if you did. I, I, I think that's so great. I just think I was so struck by that this time watching it. Absolutely. And kind of circling back to something I said earlier, I think that really hammers home how well Deep Red kind of put 
places you as the viewer into the film. And so you're trying to figure out who the killer was the whole time. And also I think a lot of the kind of camera work where it doesn't just focus on the, uh, on the murder that's going on, or it doesn't just focus on kind of the killer sneaking across the rooftop or something. It'll focus on these different details, the same way that our eye movement works and the way that if there's something undesirable going on, like someone getting murdered, we will avert our eyes or look elsewhere. So, yeah, I just I really think this movie's very immersive. Yeah, it's it's really I don't know, man. I guess I'm just heaping a lot of praise on this movie, but I, I think it just deserves it. It's just such a masterpiece, and a lot of people agree that it's, if not the best, it's among the best Jalo ever made. I I would absolutely agree with that statement. One thing that I was curious about, though, upon watching this again, was if this were remade or if it were made for the first time today, how do you think it would be received? And what do you think would be different about it? So I think that in a way, Jolly are so distinctly Italian. I mean, with the exception, and, and there have been movies made in other countries that were influenced by them. Most notably, I guess, uh, De Palma's Dress to Kill, which I will confess I've not seen, but most people list in uh, lists of, you know, non-italian giallo if, if such a thing exists but but giallo are just they're just so italian that i don't know how it would be changed um if it were made outside of the country of italy now if it were made inside of italy and there are still some gialli being made today um but it's just not not nearly as many i don't know i think i'm rambling on that but i, I don't know how it would be changed and i don't know how it'd be received because when i first read about giallo films I was a little hesitant to watch them because the descriptions of them all made them sound like they were going to be very lurid and very, um, it's not that I mind gore. I'm a, I'm a big Lucio Fulci fan, but just sometimes if, if something's lurid for the sake of being lurid, I, I'm not interested, but these movies are not that they are stylish and, and artful. But at the same time, you could imagine that that, that level of violence would have been shocking um, to people at the time. Whereas now when, everybody in America, mainstream audiences watch Game of Thrones and stuff like that. You know, that kind of, that level of violence doesn't shock us anymore. I don't know what that says about our society, but um, so nowadays, I, I don't know. I almost want to say that they would not up the violence, that they would maybe keep it subtle. They would probably play more into the mystery and the crime aspect of it, I think, in, in a modern audience than they would into the violence and things like that. I, I think it would it would play as more of a mystery a murder mystery film uh, than, than any kind of horror element nowadays. That's what I would definitely hope. Although I could also see this going the complete opposite route and going all in on the gratuitous gore, kind of the gore porn yeah. route. Although I would hope it went more, it would go more with the sort of mystery thriller kind of vibe. And of course, Argento would probably hate it if it were remade. <laughs> he yeah. in interviews was openly opposed to a Suspiria remake you know yeah. uh, well that's actually what kind of got me thinking about if this had a remake how would it be because we uh, we actually watched the Suspiria remake uh, together yeah when it came out and going in I tried to kind of reserve any judgment or pre or kind of preconceived notions because Suspiria is a film that is very near and dear to my heart. The, the film itself, the soundtrack, uh, and 
I was kind of curious how it could even be remade. And I think the remake kind of paid homage to that, and, but also kind of went its own route. So it, had, it definitely had some similarities, but it, I think, made a lot of necessary changes, like swapping the very colorful, uh, the very vibrant color palette in the original Suspiria for a very drab, but still exciting and entertaining color palette uh even switching up the music so it was i think tom york did the did the score for that tom york yeah yeah and it also i think delved into the kind of the lore of the witches a lot more whereas argento's spiria didn't i mean it sort of touched upon the the history of them but it didn't really go beyond that and that's really gotten to the politics of the witches and actually kind of showed them a lot more yo what you just said brought up two things that i want to talk about that are not necessarily connected but i'm going to throw them both in right now one of them is i i totally agree with what you were just saying about the stylistic changes for the suspiria remake you liked it right you enjoyed the suspiria remake i loved it i loved yeah, the I original suspiria i, I loved the remake it. Yeah, but I like what you were just saying because you're right. Like they don't, they didn't try to be Argento. They didn't try to be Argento. They took, like you say, almost an, a totally opposite route with the kind of exchanging all the bright colors for the drab colors. You would have to get a musical genius like Tom York to write a score for a Suspiria remake following up on Goblin's music. You'd have to get a genius composer like Tom York. I think that was a great choice. So that's what I wanted to say there is that it, it, it wasn't trying to be Argento. It was trying to be its own thing. And I really thought it was great um, when we watched it. The other thing I wanted to throw in, you were talking about the history of the witches and made me think this. So one thing we haven't even talked about is, um, Daria Nicolodi, or how have you say her last name? Nicolodi Nicolodi as Gianna in deep red, uh, who I thought she was amazing in this movie, by the way, in deep red, I thought she was great. Now she was Dario Argento's long-term girlfriend, long-term partner, mother of, uh, Aja Argento, his daughter. Um, they met in the casting for deep red and they would, you know, they didn't marry or anything, but they, they were together for many years. Uh, and she apparently was heavily involved in helping him write Suspiria. She was sort of into occultism. She had a grandmother who had a similar experience about going to some piano school and finding out that there were there was black magic being practiced there or something crazy like that. It was apparently based on a story from her grandmother's past. But uh, Daria Nicolota apparently was, was heavily involved in helping write all that stuff for Suspiria. I did not know that. Yeah. I didn't that until is, recently. Yeah. That is a very fun fact. And yeah. uh, interestingly, uh, it was actually Helga being a psychic that sort of got me thinking about that question I asked earlier of whether this uh, Deep Red exists in the same universe as Spiria or something like that. Just because there, I feel like there was always in a lot of our gender films. Uh, there was usually some kind of supernatural thing going on. Yeah. Especially in the, it was the three mothers trilogy. Right. Uh, which I, I absolutely love that trilogy. How, how many, have you seen all of those? Only Suspiria. I've never seen Inferno, um, which I recently learned that Inferno was a huge influence on John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. 
Uh, and uh, he, he, I was reading an interview with Carpenter, and he was talking about how uh, Inferno was such a big influence on Prince of Darkness. And I, I've definitely never seen the third mother. Uh, what's it called here? Mother of Tears or something like that? I think in Italy it's just called the third mother. Yeah, I, it's called Mother of Tears. Yeah. Claudio Simonetti did the score for that one, I think, of Goblin. I, yep, you were correct. And it was, uh, I think it was Keith Emerson who did yeah, Inferno. You're right. you're right about that. Yeah, which that's a that's a really interesting score. And I, I love Inferno. I still think of the Three Mothers trilogy. My favorite is Suspiria, but Inferno is a very close second. I really want to watch it. It's on uh, Prime right now, and I really want to watch it. Uh, I have just the trailer. Um, it showed after we saw Tenebrae at that screening, and the trailer really hooked me in, and that song really hooked me in. It's funny that apparently Keith Emerson's score was not well received um, at the time, because I, I think that at least that theme song is, is great. Yeah, I'm surprised that it wasn't well received at the time, because it's definitely one of my favorite uh, soundtracks. He's following up on Goblin and Suspiria, and I think a lot of people probably just wanted more of Goblin, and what they got was Keith Emerson. You know? Yeah, I mean, you got to look at it as its own entity, because right. if you compare everything to Goblin scores, and especially Goblin Suspiria right. score, you're you're going to be disappointed. For sure. I mean, it's, you know, most people regard it as their masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, so... You want to rate this bad boy? Yes, I do. All right. All right. Uh, I'm going to let you go first. All right. In the past two times I've been on the show, I've struggled a little bit with my rating. I'm not struggling with today's rating. This is a five-star movie. Easily. Five-star movie for me. It's a masterpiece. Start to finish. Love it. Five stars. That's five stars. that. That's a bold claim. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got to say, this is getting five stars for me. I, yeah. I really actually thought very hard and tried to take a star off for something. And I'm, I'm not going to say it's necessarily a perfect film throughout. I think there's some kind of weird spots in it. Like, uh, like you know, pinning the lizard or, or like the dog fight. But I think that's the, the beauty of this movie and what makes it so fascinating to watch is that and gives it so much replay value. There are so many details to take in, whether they're audio uh, audio visual or the combined effect and watching it multiple times like we touched upon earlier you pick up on a lot of clues to who the killer is that you didn't pick up on the first time you watched it so yeah i absolutely love this movie it is incredibly exciting it's very in immersive uh and i even think it kind of goes beyond just being a film and i think it is an experience yeah it's just a beautiful film the cinematography is great the music which we've raved about to no end is a masterpiece i mean goblin argento it's just it's I love this movie. If you can't, I loved this movie and it, and it really opened the door for me to wanting to get more into Jalo films. And since then, you know, I've watched um, several other of Argento's. I've watched some of Bava. I've watched some of Fulci who I love Fulci's horror films, but I'd never really watched his, um, his Jalo. And I, and I watched uh, don't, don't torture a duckling recently. And I plan to watch um, uh, the psychic uh, seven notes in black. It's uh, a little harder to come by, but uh, yeah, I, I, it really, Put, threw me into this whole world of giallo films and, and i love it don't you know who didn't... oh go ahead don't torture. oh don't torture a duckling is one that i've actually been meaning to uh, watch 
Um, not anything like Deep Red by any means. Fulci was different <laughs> than Argento. <laughs> Fulci uh, seemed a lot less fun in a lot of ways than Argento, even though I think that Fulci's horror movies are a blast, like Zombie. Um, but it's a very different film with a very different feel than Deep Red. Don't touch your duckling. It's very different. But you know who didn't agree with us on our love of Deep Red? The New York Times review at the time. I wrote down a couple choice nuggets from the New York Times <laughs> review. <laughs> Uh, which claimed that it was a bucket of axe murder movie cliches, which had I read that, I would have instantly wanted to see the film, I'm going to be honest. Uh, And that he called Dario Argento a director of incomparable incompetence. Did... Did did we watch the same movie, New York I Times? I have no idea. I have no idea. Apparently, most reviews. I mean, Deep Red was very successful. Apparently, most reviews agreed that it was a, a great movie, but um, at least for its genre. But uh, apparently, this reviewer in New York Times, whose name I didn't, I didn't write down. Probably good because I don't want to spit on their work. But uh, did not agree with us. That is shocking. I mean, <laughs> if anything, I think the the kills in here are very unique. I don't think very it's... unique. I don't think it's just a bucket of cliches. A I think of axe murder movie cliches. Whoo, the, the, them's are some harsh words right there. Very. Wow, that's that's a brutal review. A brutal review, yes, sir. Whoo, well, don't listen to that. Listen to the Lloyd fiends, and if you've already seen this movie. Go watch it again. If you haven't seen this movie, well, we kind of spoiled it, but go watch it's it right now. Still worth watching. It's like watching a. Uh, it's like watching art. Exactly. It is definitely like watching art. Uh, so, thank you again, Wes, for joining us, and tell the good people where they can follow you. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Cliff Weston. You can check out my webpage for my writing at uh, wdclifton.wordpress.com. Uh, I write under the name WD Clifton. By the way, I didn't mention earlier, frontiertales.com is where my story, Don't Cheat the Hangman, will be coming out in July. Uh, go read it, and hey, why don't you throw a vote for me on the for the best story uh, in that issue. And then, well, if you like it, if you don't vote for somebody else. Um, And then finally, if you want to listen to some music from long ago in my past, you can check out my old punk band Brentwood at brentwood.bandcamp.com for free. Heck yeah. I'm definitely checking out both of those. Uh, You can follow us at celluloid fiends on Facebook and Twitter and at celluloid fiends pod on Instagram, which Wes just set up for us. So thank you very much for that. No problemo. If you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And you can check out my reviews and tutorials in the tech space at techuplife.com. And if you haven't already done so, head over to your favorite podcast source. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify. And go ahead and subscribe as well as give us a rating and leave us a review because it really helps us out. All right. Thanks for listening. And don't do anything I wouldn't do, which leaves you a pretty wide berth. 
stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to, please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.